Entrepreneurship has become a global phenomenon. Uncover the stories of entrepreneurs and investors worldwide. From Sub-Saharan Africa to Silicon Valley and beyond. Here on the Global Startup Movement. Now, here's your host, Andrew Berkowitz. So we are here with Troy Vossler, who is the co-founder at Generator, which is a nationally ranked accelerator program investing in high-growth startups. And formerly, he was a co-founder at Sconey's, which is a true dorm room entrepreneurship story. So Troy, I'd love for you to really take us back to, to when you were back in school. Tell us how you started your entrepreneurship journey and then how that's built up into uh, Generator. Yeah, you bet. So, so my background, you know, I like to joke that I started with the most cliche college dorm room startup that you can imagine, which is a t-shirt company. And so I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison and upon arriving, lived in the dorms and another guy who lived on my dorm floor, we quickly became friends. So we had no prior connection, no, no common friends, no kind of overlap other than just the serendipitous chance that we lived on the same dorm floor together. And so from that, we both realized that we kind of had this entrepreneurial bug. And so we would constantly brainstorm different ideas, walk into class, hanging out in the dorms, evening at the cafeteria. But we, we just didn't love, fall in love or have passion behind any of those ideas until one night, it was the spring semester of our freshman year. So this is the spring of 2004. We both had heard the word Scani. So think of, of, of the word Wisconsin with an, a healthy Wisconsin ass, accent and kind of truncating that to just say Scani as a word that's synonymous with cheesehead or Wisconsinite. So meaning a person from Wisconsin or, or anything Wisconsin-esque. And we said, you know, hey, that, that's kind of clever. We hear people use it around campus. So we didn't invent the word. We didn't coin the word. But we said, what if we created a brand around this? And so we each put in $300. So we started with 600 bucks. And we printed 100 t-shirts that either said Scani or Scani Nation, kind of this idea of, of a movement to take pride in, in being from Wisconsin, just like Cheesehead. And uh, we started selling those t-shirts out of our dorm room. So we, we started with 600 bucks. We printed 100 t-shirts. And we sold out in about a week. Now, when we started, it was, it was mostly to, to friends, friends of friends, people who lived in the dorms with us. But nevertheless, we realized that we were onto something. And so we would constantly reinvest the profits back into the company. We would order larger and larger batch sizes, new styles, new garment types, uh, new slogans, et cetera, on these t-shirts. And it, and it quickly took off and grew. So we started selling online at scanny.com. We started selling to places like the University Bookstore uh, and other third-party retailers. And then eventually we partnered with our screen printer and opened uh, our own Scani store on State Street in downtown Madison in 2007. So again, it's one of these dorm stories that, that usually you never hear works out. But, but for my partner and I, we, you know, we were actually fortunate to have a lot of success with it. And, and that experience, building the t-shirt company, building Scani Nation, really was the underpinnings, I'd say, of, of kind of the, the entrepreneurial journey that, that I went down. After I ended up graduating from University of Wisconsin, I then thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Perhaps I watched too much Law & Order and enrolled in law school at the University of Wisconsin as well. But about halfway through my, my first year in law school, I said, you know, I just really wasn't that into it. And, but what I did love was, was business. I loved the entrepreneurship. And so I still stuck it out. I still earned my, my law degree. And, and when I graduated, I was on a group of folks, of, a first group of students to go through a brand new program called the Law and Entrepreneurship Clinic. So this was a four-credit program that law students can take where they actually provide free legal services to startups, entrepreneurs, and small business owners. And I love that. So I, I did that in my final semester of law school, and I just love that experience. So when I graduated from law school, 
again, I didn't want to formally practice law in the traditional sense, but I really fell in love with this idea of how can a lawyer really act as a counselor and work with entrepreneurs and help them build businesses and support them. And so I joined the faculty. I was a, a, a clinical professor, which really was a supervising attorney in this law and entrepreneurship clinic, where I would then supervise law students providing these free legal services. Now from that is, that's how I got to meet my, my generator co-founder, Joe Kurgis. So Joe was also a lawyer. So now I got two lawyers with us. And we met by working on some mutual transactions together. So he was representing a high net worth individual who was doing some angel investing. And my students were representing some of the startups that that, that individual was investing in. And so Joe and I, we met by working on these mutual transactions together. And I'd say we, we, we not only hit it off personally, but perhaps more importantly, we, we really had a shared ground perspective that there lacked a lot of efficiency for an entrepreneur to go from idea to incorporation to growth to raising venture capital. And we just thought it could all be made much, much more efficient. And so at that point, we, we quit our jobs and we were fortunate to find a group of angel investors in Milwaukee who really shared that same vision and passion. And we started Generator. So our very first Generator program was the summer of 2012 in Milwaukee. And we had a great cohort of companies. In that first class, we only had 90 applicants. And, and seven years later, we get over a thousand applications for each of our programs. So we've really come a long way in, in terms of building that Generator platform. One thing I'd be curious to hear from you, you had success when you were a college student when it comes to entrepreneurship, but I guess a, a different type of entrepreneurship than you know high growth venture capital style startup. So we've been shown this narrative of the Zuckerbergs and the Gates of college students dropping out and starting these, these billion dollar tech companies. But one thing that I've learned from the podcast is it's more likely that someone who's much later in their career, has had a decade or two worth of experience in the corporate world, is actually going to be successful at it. When I see something like, I see a bunch of venture capital firms cropping up that are just focused on investing in college students. And when I see that, in my opinion, that's probably not a great idea. But I guess, well, I mean, what, is, what are your thoughts on college entrepreneurship when it comes to the high growth startup game? Yeah, I'd say entrepreneurial ability doesn't discriminate. And so let's say 1% of the world's population is entrepreneurial. I think it's a fallacy to believe that all 1% of them are college students or all 1% of them were born in Silicon Valley or moved to Silicon Valley. Rather, I think the distribution is, is perhaps more even. Now, obviously, people move throughout their lifetimes and, and different backgrounds and makeups allow people different opportunities in their respective lives. And I don't have, unfortunately, I don't have statistics within our portfolio relative to age. What I anecdotally can say is that we've had a, a big spectrum. We've invested in everything from people at the age of 19 to people who were grandparents. Um, so it's really uh, a spectrum along the line that we've invested in. And I can't sit here with a straight face and say one is more successful than, than the other. Again, I think we've had dis fairly evenly distributed outcomes in terms of success and failure across the, the entire spectrum of age. And so for us, I think it's more about you know, is this a, I, I steal this from Paul Graham, where he writes about, you know, what investors are looking for is someone who's formidable. And, you know, roughly, is that someone who gets their way in life? And I think that could be true of a Mark Zuckerberg type in college, especially building a platform that speaks to that emerging demographic, in that case, a social network. But it, it could be just as true of someone who's transitioning out of the corporate environment who really understands uh, a more nuanced industry or a regulatory framework within a regulated industry, and they're looking to uh, innovate within that. Um, so I, I, I think it's universal. One interesting conversation I had with Alice Bentink from uh, Entrepreneur First in London, they recruit people from Oxford and Cambridge 
uh, the conversation we had was around the fact that they've kind of seen that when it comes to highly technical startups, younger people do have an advantage because they don't have years worth of dogma when it comes to uh, like programming languages and, and, and that that end of things versus yeah, the you know more business focused people that have ha- had the experience in the industry understand how that 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 side it works um so you know my guess is there's probably the, there's probably a homeostasis point that's a combination of the two meaning how do you how do you get that perfect amount of naivete or, or um outsider thinking thinking about it the same problem a different way but at the same time how do you bring together a team that has some existing relationships so that they can move within that existing framework. So probably there's probably a best of both worlds there that exists. Well, I, I want to hear some of what you've, you've seen and what you've learned running, I guess, seven years now worth of uh, accelerators. What would you say are some of the common themes across the teams that, that have been, been successful? I think I, I think I saw on your website, you've had five companies acquired so far. So, I mean, what were the common traits across those founders that, that, that come to mind? Yeah, I'd say a big thing that perhaps is lacking, but that also is probably overrepresented in the successful companies is a knack for sales. And I think increasingly, we're not teaching sales in school. We're not teaching it in K-12. We're not teaching it in higher education. You know, a perfect example of that is when I was in law school, I don't think I ever got graded on speaking. And yet, when we think about our day-to-day interactions in business and in life, so much of it is, is verbal communication or even written communication. And yet, in law school, we're not even judged on that. And that always kind of surprised me. But I think the manifestation, unfortunately, of that is, unfortunately, we work sometimes with entrepreneurs that sales is not their strong suit. And I'd say for most people, sales is not their core competency. But for most entrepreneurs, their core competency tends to be product. And I think it's just human nature that whenever someone encounters uncertainty or they feel uncomfortable or kind of turbulence in their life, they revert back to their core competency. So if you're an engineer and you get kind of bad or negative feedback, you're going to go back to to trying to fix the product. If you're a coder, you're going to go back to writing code, so on and so forth. Very few of us, our core competency is sales, meaning when we encounter turbulence, we want to double down on sales. And yet, I think oftentimes that is what entrepreneurs need. And so a big, call it a placebo effect, but a big impact that we have running our accelerator programs is identifying what the core competency of each of our entrepreneurs and making sure that whenever they are kind of falling back in, into the status quo or falling back into their comfort zone, we're able to identify that and interrupt it and kind of force them to refocus on sales. Meaning with an, an, enough time, money, and energy, I believe that we can build almost any product, but I don't believe that the market will want almost any product. And so if we can focus more on the latter, I think we're going to get further along in terms of building a successful and sustainable company. Well, I, I can't believe that speaking wasn't a part of the curriculum for being a lawyer. I mean, isn't the, the ability to articulate yourself like one of the most important things in the profession? I think so. But I mean, even think of college. I, I, you know, I can't even think of more than one time where I was judged on speaking or gra- graded on that. I, I had a freshman comm class that I guess, I guess was useful, but <laughs> <laughs> it was entry-level stuff. One other thing I'd be curious before we dive into some of the uh, the different niches and sectors that, that you're in, when do you think is the right time for a startup to establish a board? Like, do you think that there are benefits of after you raise your seed round, after that first round, is, is the right time to kind of utilize the mastermind that comes yeah, along? Yeah, definitely. Okay, so- I think the sooner the better, generally speaking. And I don't say that because I think the entrepreneur needs the guidance. But what I do think the benefit of a board is, is forcing the entrepreneur to 
on a quarterly or whatever frequency basis, but let's use quarterly as an example, on a quarterly basis, sit down and reflect on what they've done and where they're going. Everything from looking at financials to looking at cash flow to more strategic decisions of the business. And I think that's an important aspect, meaning there's many entrepreneurs that we invest in. And then after the final demo day or what we call premiere night, we never hear from them again. Now that's a minority, meaning most of our entrepreneurs want to engage with us and they send us regular updates and, and, and we look forward to engaging with them. But nevertheless, I think most entrepreneurs don't communicate as much as they should. And I think the, the one major benefit of forming a board even earlier is that it forces you to communicate not only with your board, but hopefully with all of your stockholders on a regular routine basis. Meaning the most embarrassing thing I can have as an early stage investor is when a later stage investor is interested in one of our companies and asks how they're doing or how many users do they have or what is their revenue. And I don't know because that entrepreneur never communicates that. And so again, I think unfortunately that's oftentimes correlated to whether or not they have a board and a board that holds them accountable, in which case the entrepreneur just builds a much better cadence for communicating with stakeholders. And I think that's very important. And I think it's also important to be able to use the board when you're as leveraged in negotiation to be the bad guy. I think that's important. Yeah. I think another <laughs> thing that entrepreneurs sometimes are nervous about or critics of boards are nervous about is that they say, oh, the board's going to come in and, and worst case, they're going to take you out as CEO. They're going to remove you. In our experience of now having invested in 86 companies over seven years, we have, I've never seen that happen even once. Mm, interesting. Well, I would love to dive into the Motown Musician Accelerator. I, I don't I don't see a lot of yeah. uh, accelerator programs that are focused specifically on artists and musicians. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. So our mission at Generator is we want to be the best partner for a community to invest in its best and brightest. And when we started, you know, seven years ago, the only programming we had was tailored toward tech entrepreneurs. We evolved that some. We created a program called G-Beta, which is a free accelerator program focused exclusively on local companies. And we primarily partner with colleges and universities, as well as corporations to administer those programs. And then we started working a lot with corporations. So we have some corporate sponsored accelerators like the uh, we run a program called the OnRamp Insurance Accelerator in partnership with Allianz Life and Securian Financial. We do a MedTech Accelerator in partnership with Boston Scientific, Mayo Clinic, the University of Minnesota and the Medical Alley Association. So we kind of checked that box as well. But then about a year ago, my co-founder, Joe, and I, we took a step back and we said, you know, what's a category of entrepreneur that we think is particularly underserved? And we stumbled upon artists and musicians. And we said, for a tech entrepreneur, you have this fairly defined path to go from incubator or co-working space to accelerator to angel financing to venture capital. But there doesn't really exist an analog for artists and musicians, especially if we're to view them through the lens of an entrepreneur, meaning someone who wants to build a business and build a career around their art form. Similarly, we looked at all the other nationally ranked accelerators, and we noticed that no one was doing anything outside of tech. So we saw a little bit of a blue ocean opportunity. And so last year, we started with two new accelerator programs. The first is called Backline, which is an accelerator for musicians and bands. And the second is called Fellowship.art which is an accelerator for visual artists. Now, both of these are philanthropic models. So we raise money from corporations and uh, economic development groups and foundations. And then we provide a grant of between fifteen dollars and $20,000 per artist. And that's purely for them to help build their business, build their career. So it could be studio time or gallery visits or travel or production or whatever the case may be. But then we still put them through a three-month-long accelerator program just like we do a generator. So at a high level, when we think of an accelerator, you know, the core elements of it are recruiting great entrepreneurs, or in this case, musicians and artists, which we also think are entrepreneurs, helping them set milestones, 
holding them accountable to those milestones, and then really playing the role of air traffic control. So connecting them with the appropriate resources at the appropriate time. And thus far in our early iterations of this, we think we've been really successful at, at helping move the needle with these artists and musicians. So most recently, this month, we announced a brand new partnership to extend that Musician Accelerator model to Detroit. So we announced the Motown Musician Accelerator. It's a partnership with Motown Records, which is part of Capital Music Group, Techtown Detroit, which is an incubator and hub within the Detroit tech ecosystem, and then the Motown Museum. And so we've been really excited about bringing Motown back to Detroit, if you will. This corresponds with the 60th anniversary of Motown. They're building a brand new, beautiful museum and entertainment complex at the original Hitsville. So that's Barry Gordy's house, which I would argue was the original musician accelerator. And so we're bringing all that back to provide mentorship to Detroit-based musicians, each of whom will get a $20,000 grant. And so we're excited about the Motown program in Detroit. And we're also excited about extending this musician accelerator format to other cities throughout the country. And so what, what does success look like? I would, I would assume increasing bookings and, and, and their booking fees. Yeah. I mean, is that is that the focus? Yeah, at a high level, we want to build a framework and kind of chart a path for an artist to get to the point where they can generate and sustain themselves at $100,000 a year. And that's a mix of touring, so concert tours, streaming, and also some degree of album sales, uh, and then merchandise. And so how can we help them put together kind of the framework and give them the courage to say, okay, I can actually do this. Maybe that involves signing with a record label. Um, And so how can we open the doors there? Maybe that involves them beefing up their social media games so that they can increase the number of streams and followers that they have, which also then bleeds into how can they book more and better shows and, and put on their first regional and then national tour. So mm. it really revolves around. And so what, what, where would you say from, from what you've seen with all the musicians that you, you've talked with and you work with is, is the real money in the tours or is it in the, the, the merchandise? I'd say it's really in the touring. So the ability to tour and successfully tours is where the bulk of the money comes from. That being said, streaming keeps picking up. You know, there's some interesting statistics in that it just broke another threshold. I'm blanking on the exact statistic, but another meaningful threshold in terms of the amount of revenue that it's generating as kind of a distribution channel. Hmm. Hmm. I would assume that some, uh, a musician's business model is probably similar to podcasters. Yeah, how would you compare it? Well, I think that, and I have I have this running joke that that kills every time. You want to know how you become a millionaire with a podcast? How's that? First, become a billionaire and then launch a podcast. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but so one one thing that I did I did learn last year that was a good insight for me in in building this platform was most of the big podcasts out there they actually make a lot of their money off of events. And events are how they're able to make it enticing enough to package everything together for for a big sponsor. And so that that's kind of a, we'll say a, a secret to the podcasting world. It's not just sponsorship for the shows. It's combining that with, with other things that, 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 that makes up a larger package is where most of the, the, the big sponsor dollars come yeah, in. I can see it. And I think we'll, I think um, we'll see more. We're starting to see a little bit of this, but even brand partnerships with emerging artists. So if, if you're a consumer facing hmm. brand and, and you want some interesting native content, how could you create that through an artist and as they come up, even the content of them kind of going through the trials and tribulations of their career, but even the music itself that's coming out. I, th- I think there'll be some interesting new business models built around that. This whole idea of, of being a, a social, like a, a digital influencer, uh, I think that translates pretty well for musicians who are able to leverage some or able to build some somewhat of an audience that, that they can then leverage on um, whatever yeah. platform it may be. 
One thing I want to hear from you, I know we're, we're coming up on time. You testified on non-compete agreements yeah. uh, in front of the legislative committee members. And I would love for you to expand specifically on the advantage that California has when it comes to the unenforceability of non-compete agreements. Absolutely. I, I firmly believe that non-compete agreements and any sort of restrictive covenants within that realm are really a tax on innovation. And so as state government, we can spout all day long about how we support entrepreneurship and innovation. But at the end of the day, I'll just use Wisconsin, which is where I live. I can't name more than one venture-backed digital technology company in Wisconsin that was founded by a former employee of any of Wisconsin's Fortune 500 companies. And I think a component of that is the culture that non-compete agreements have, have created. Whether or not they're enforceable or to what degree they're enforceable doesn't really matter as much as the chilling effect that they have. So if you're a 20-year-old, 30-year-old, 40-year-old, 50-year-old, any age person, you know, if you want to spin out and create a technology that's adjacent to the industry knowledge that you've developed, of course, most likely you're going to want to innovate in, in the whole career that you've built a career in, right? Now, again, I'm not, say, I'm not advocating that entrepreneurs steal intellectual property. I think if anything, we should create stronger laws around intellectual property, but then allow people to use the general knowledge that they have about an industry to be able to build new businesses. And unfortunately, I think non-compete agreements prevent people from doing that, both the chilling effect that they have and then the actual legal teeth that they have in terms of the litigation around them. And so by eliminating non-competes, we've seen just a tremendous amount of innovation come out of California, Silicon Valley in particular. And so, you know, my belief is that I would love to see non-compete agreements eliminated entirely, or at a minimum, I would love to see their enforcement go down or their applicability be reduced. I think we see that in other areas as well. One of my favorite examples is free agency in the NFL. You know, the original NFL strike happened because the owners didn't want to allow the players to have free agency. And, and the owners thought that their best players, they developed their best players, and then that best player would leave to go to the, the next highest bidder in terms of a competing team. But in fact, we've seen the opposite. With the rise of free agency in the NFL, NFL owners have, have only seen an uptick in business because the product on the field is that much more competitive and that much better. Meaning I think we would improve our economies locally, regionally, and nationally by eliminating non-competes and allowing talent to be free agents uh, within an ecosystem or in this case within an economy. So Troy, we're going to finish off with a quick fire round. Four questions up to 60 seconds per answer. Sound good? All right. So if, if you were going to start uh, your next accelerator, it had to be outside of the U.S., what country would you choose and why? Canada. I, I just think there's a tremendous amount of innovation happening in Canada. There's a huge cross-border opportunity with U.S. companies wanting to enter the Canadian market, Canadian entrepreneurs and startups wanting to enter the U.S. market, and then just the close proximity and cultural similarities between the two, I think just make it a really ripe environment for new startups. Well, that makes sense. You're like probably like what, uh, less than an hour flight to Canada? Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> proximity is definitely important. Um, yeah. So next question, what is your favorite business book and why? Ooh, when you were talking about, you know, what's the kind of the bootstrapped entrepreneur versus the venture-backed entrepreneur, a book I really enjoy is The Millionaire Next Door, which goes in depth into a survey of entrepreneurship in America and, and finding that most millionaires by definition are pretty not traditional businesses like plumbers and contractors and uh, landscape company owners and things like that. I, I find that book very fascinating. So if you were going to choose one person from history, can be dead or alive, to be an LP in your venture capital fund, who would you choose and why? <laughs> oh man, dead or alive to be an LP. Um, oh man, that's such a great question. Hmm. 
Maybe I'd go with someone like a, a Mark Andreessen just because he's originally from Wisconsin. He's obviously had a tremendous amount of success as an entrepreneur and a venture capitalist. So I would love to be able to, to tap his wisdom, his network, and, and in this case, his pocketbook. And final question, what is your favorite thing about living in Madison? I love just the heartbeat that the city has and the fact that it's a college town, but it's still vibrant and, and just a growing place. It, the population increase with each census that comes out has is, is increased each time in pretty tremendous ways. And we're seeing the benefits of that in terms of more lifestyle opportunities, more nightlife, more art, more music, more culture, and more great entrepreneurship. Well, Troy Vassalera, co-founder at Generator, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for listening. Be sure to add Andrew on Snapchat at andberk, that's A-N-D-B-E-R-K, to see firsthand a day in the life of an entrepreneur in cities all around the world.